Welcome to Interlocutor Interviews. I'm Tyler Nessler, the founder of Interlocutor Magazine, which features in-depth coverage of creators, thinkers, performers, and artists of all types. You can check us out online at interlocutorinterviews.com. And if you're a fan of our arts coverage, you can sign up to be a subscriber or contributor via Patreon. Just click on the Patreon link on our site. So today I have with me Adele Berté, who recently published her memoir, Twist, An American Girl, uh, which is a recounting of her difficult childhood in the 1960s and 70s Cleveland. Um, And it tells the story through the eyes of Maddie Twist, who acts as a stand-in for Berté. So welcome, Adele. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for uh, having me, Tyler. It's great to be here. My pleasure. Um, Well, so... Basically, um, I want to mention that uh, I did do an interview in the online edition of Interlocutor um, back in April. Um, And so we're just going to expand on that conversation. Um, And also, um, I'll say that you first came into my awareness at a uh, group reading in New York at uh, the Berlin Bar on the Lower East Side, um, which I think was back in uh, 2021 late 2021. Yeah. Yeah, And it was headlined by Lydia lunch. And, Mm -hmm. uh, there was also, uh, Lucy Sant and, uh, Joseph Keckler. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have already interviewed Lucy. Um, and then I, that's also where I discovered Joseph Keckler, which was a kind of an amazing discovery. Mm. Um, and I did an interview, uh, both on, in the magazine and uh, podcast. And for those who don't know, Joseph is an opera singer who kind of does this mashup of spoken word and opera, really unique. Um, so check those out. That was a great discovery that night, but it was just a great night in general. Um, and uh, also, I remember seeing Esther Bowlin. Do you know her? Oh, yes, very well. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she was. She wasn't uh, performing that night, but she was in the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a great. It was a great evening of kind of, um, you know. Uh, underground New Yorkers from that era kind of coming together in the late, late seventies. It was what we're talking about. And, um, uh, speaking of Lydia lunch, I also interviewed the filmmaker, Beth B who Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you probably also know. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You were all (laughs) all around. Yep. The old compadres from downtown New York in the the late seventies and eighties. Yeah. 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 And Mm -hmm. an incredible documentary she did on, on Lydia lunch as well. Mm Yeah. Um, well, so let's get into talking about Twist. Um, it is a really intense book, and um, you had mentioned that you've been basically working on it for like well, since nineteen seventy seven. You've like it sounds like in you know fits and starts tried to find a way in, mm. and so finding this, you I believe kind of characterized as like a Trojan horse character, um, Maddie Twist as mm-hmm. as sort of a a narrative device. Um, when did you, could you address again, like how you kind of, you finally kind of, um, decided to uh, take the approach of, of creating this character. Um, and you had said it wasn't an immediate decision. It took a while, but when did it finally dawn on you that you needed to kind of use this device as a, as a way to, to, you know, recount such a personal story? Um, yeah, I did say in our interview, uh, that it, It's been in the works for decades. I've taken it out of the cupboard and worked on it and put it back in for years at a time. But um, I think, honestly, 
it was around when Trump started. Yeah. <laughs> and it, like that, I really felt the need to get the book out uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a personal story, but like microcosm, macrocosm about what, what we go through in American society mm-hmm. when we're not in that top whatever percentage of, you know, uh, of income and uh, working class people are, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of invisible a lot in culture. And as a woman who grew up at a time when being queer could get you killed, it could prove fatal. Um, I just felt like we needed to, to really tell the truth about our lives uh, in a way that, uh, you know, ha- has to do with the resistance against these systemic oppressions that, just beat us up so badly, especially over the last six years or so. Right. Um, and so I came to the point where I felt like, you know, Maddie Twist was this avatar, basically, but she allowed me to tell the truth in a very direct, you know, first person active uh, situation where the kid is going through it. Right. And, um, and that was really important to me because in a way it also was a way to uh, avoid adult analysis at a time when cancel culture is so punishing mm-hmm. when you talk about gender or race or any of it um the sensitivities are off the map and you know basically if we don't talk about the real wounds of what we've gone through uh, we're never going to heal so it was really important for me to to find that voice and to um present it so that it could avoid the kind of scrim of adult analysis. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, the way that things have turned politically and culturally in this country, especially since Mm -hmm. Trump, you say that that was a real catalyst because you've been kind of, you know, kicking around this idea of writing about, you know, these painful early experiences. Um, Do you think that if things had gone a different direction politically or socially in this country, you wouldn't have felt as much of an impetus to, to write this? Or did you always kind of want to get it out in some way, ultimately? I always wanted to get it out. But Mm -hmm. I was also, uh, and there were moments where I spoke to agents and uh, a couple of really prestigious editors like Gerald Howard at Random Random House. And uh, it was, um, how can I say this? I tried to cover things up a lot in Mm. that story in earlier versions. Um, I was afraid of telling the truth because there's a there's a lot of things happening in the book that that people would would just it would roil them in terms of you know racial politics and gender politics and um, mm-hmm. um, so yeah I've always wanted to get it out but uh, I I didn't feel the bravery and the courage and the impetus that I felt in the last six years you know and I think that that you know politics has has you know basically provoked provoked the uh that courage in me yeah and another thing that this is i did mention this in the in our first in- interview but um in your author's note you know you you had said something that really struck me that you have you no know, appetite for revenge or maybe this is a this book is a story of compassionate revenge and that phrase compassionate revenge really jumped out at me because you know we don't <laughs> we don't think of those of compassion and revenge you know as, as being um related really or they're almost like opposites um 
And then, you know, I'd asked, you know, how did you develop a steady mindfulness to avoid, you know, recounting these, these harrowing personal stories, you know, without ever getting overly vindictive? Because I do feel like there, there is um, a, a sense of forgiveness or understanding, um, you know, um, in terms of how you're uh, presenting, you know, these, these very abusive people. Um, how tricky was that for you, ultimately? Well, after years and years of therapy, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll help. Um, and you know, and and a and a strong spiritual life that mm-hmm. doesn't uh, doesn't really follow any specific path. But um, I, you know, I I had to as a child, I really had to think and ponder why people could be so cruel, yeah. and to and to think about what it what it was about them that made them do the things that they did which basically is a systemic oppression against women against uh, blacks against you know and and really kind of dive into that in a in a and when i say compassionate revenge it's like truth can be revenge within itself mm-hmm. but but you know there has to be like a a, a more tender look at what creates that cruelty. And, and I think in the book, what I, what I really wanted to also convey is that I wanted to flip the script on the, on the misery memoir. Yeah. (laughs) And also show how, you know, uh, how to survive trauma. And for me, it was all about magical thinking and music. Yeah. I mean, those two things really saved my life. Um, And uh, yes, there was a lot of abuse, but there was also, Along the way, there was goodness in people, and there was incredible music and books and poetry. And those are the things I always reached for, which allowed me to push on through a lot of trauma in my childhood. Yeah, and that's really essential. And then also, um, I think it's fascinating that you took a, an, an analytical approach, too, in looking at the the wider picture of why mm-hmm. people you know, become abuse, abusive. And, you know, mm-hmm. as you said, these systemic problems mm-hmm. and it's a whole stew of issues. And mm-hmm. I think that's kind of rare. A lot of people can get more just caught up in their own, their own, you know, um, anger and sense of wanting revenge and et cetera. Right. You know, and, right. and, right. and just thinking that these people are just evil and it's a very black and white sense of thinking. And you, um, it sounds like for a long time, um, this, you know, going back pre-recent political events in this country and and, and so on, um, we're taking more of an analytical approach too. Um, do you feel like you that that was just also, you know, reading reading the the book? I could tell that as a as a child, you were just very naturally analytical, which I think kind of saved you in a lot of ways. You were very observant and analytical. Um, do you think that was also a core factor in, in sort of surviving? a lot of those experiences being oh, able to most, kind of take a step back. Sure. Most definitely. Like for instance, my mother's schizophrenia, mm-hmm. she could be incredibly abusive, but she was also a joy and her imagination within that, that schizophrenia um, was such a, a, an incredible world that was so far removed from the suburban working class milieu that she was caught in with her children, you know, yeah. and, and in a way I, I was able to use that as a badge of courage to take risks in my own life that I would 
ordinarily not have taken had it not been for her what people would think of as an affliction her mental illness you know and the same with uh the like i don't want to do spoilers here but you know i i learned a lot about vietnam uh by working in a mental hospital and also i had an encounter with a vietnam vet a few encounters with vietnam vets in dark and light and what happens what happens to men that are just used to go to war and to kill people or or put their own lives in danger for a system that is just bullshit you know excuse my language but i had to you know i had to look into why that particular vietnam vet abused me and and parse out parse out the forgiveness you know uh like it it's it's such a weird strange world we live in and it's very hard um and the hardness of it needs a tender look it needs to mm-hmm. go into the center of it into the softness of it in an alchemical way to be able to survive yeah. what we go through in in this life you know um not all people are have gone through you know what i've gone through obviously but we all have our own uh oppressions and systemic uh you know, things that we absorb that, and it makes it very hard for us, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, uh, I did an interview recently with this artist, Zhivago Duncan, who, um, comments a lot on sort of universal consciousness and epigenetic memory, you know, like mm-hmm, embedded, mm-hmm. you know, cultural traumas, uh, that sort of are passed down. And mm-hmm. even if you're in the best case scenario, um, whatever your upbringing is, I think that we all absorb that just collectively in a lot of mm. ways. Yeah. Oh, yes. So that's interesting. Yeah. And also, you know, it's like in that sense that you were just talking about, which is really interesting to me, um, you know, women, we have, uh, we've absorbed so much pain through, through the centuries, you know, and to kind of step out of that pain and be brave enough to break, break the chains of it is, is, you know, it's, it's really, really difficult. I uh, my maternal lineage is Irish, mm-hmm. and for the generations that I know, um, there were no husbands and there were no fathers. They were unknown. Hmm. Um, and I think that my grandmother might have been in a Magdalene laundry at some point. So you know, this 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 all it's very convoluted in terms of the pain and. And how to how to break that chain? I just want to say briefly that I read something recently about dragonflies and dragonflies. I, I read this on a Mary Gateskill um, uh, Substack that oh. dragonflies take three generations to migrate from one place to another. Huh. And I thought, huh. how extremely beautiful! <laughs> you know, it's kind yeah. of like the three generations of women that I have oh. in in my in my soul. Um, I'm the, I'm the chain breaker, you know? And, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry to go <laughs> off on a tangent there, but you know, no, I, no, I think it's totally relevant. I mean, that, you. that, that's fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, one thing that I, I, I wanted to mention is, uh, you know, it, it, it's, this, it's really curious experience as a reader, um, you know, reading something that is so intensely personal, and I, I think that 
kind of an interesting, interesting question to ponder, um, you know, from going from the reader to the writer and back and forth. Um, so I've read this book and, you know, uh, as we've been talking about, it's recounting, you know, extremely personal and traumatic experiences. And, you know, there were many cases when I was reading this and like, I cannot believe this person even survived this, <laughs> this childhood. It's mind blowing. Um, and then, you know, when I finished, finished the book, it was almost like, I don't want to say a sense of like, more of a sense of self-consciousness. Like it's almost as if I, I know you really well, <laughs> but I, you know, obviously I don't, I don't know you. <laughs> and this is, this is really the first time we've met quote unquote. Um, but how, you know, how is that for you as a writer too, knowing that, you know, you put this out, this very highly personal story out there and it's being, you know, um, absorbed by all these other people and, you know, who might feel as if they know you personally, but, you know, they, it's not really a personal thing per se, but it, it's a strange dynamic is what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what are your feelings? What are your feelings about that in the sense of, you know, how you perceive by readers? And another thing I wanted to add is like, how have readers responded? I, I would imagine that many people have come up to you since this has been published, you know, um, wanting to tell their own personal stories or wanting to acknowledge you for your bravery and, and, you know, your, your candidness about what happened to yourself. Um, gee, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, I've, let's put it this way. I've lived many lives since my childhood, you know? And yeah. um, so that's sure. That's part of what uh, the makeup of my psyche is. Um, you know, what I went through. Um, but uh, so reading the book is not going to tell you exactly who I am, you know, sure, because uh, there's so much more. But um, I think people, the feedback I've been getting, for the most part, is about bravery and courage mm -hmm. to tell that story. And, uh, and, and basically, I have gotten some feedback about people being inspired by it to tell the truth. Um, I think that, you know, it's very hard for people to, to tell the truth about themselves in a way that might help someone else heal. I mean, that was part of the point of the book for me too, is that, um, and I'm not comparing traumas here, but I think we're in an age where a paper cut like Chris Rock says, becomes <laughs> like, you know, it's like super sensitivity, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, the, when you've gone through what I've gone through, it does make me bristle a little bit to see people complaining about the tiniest little slights or like, um, and, and I want to be able to inspire people to see that, that, Again, it's not a competition, but um, bravery and speaking the truth and not being afraid is really important right now. I think that a lot of people are being conditioned through social engineering to feel like they have to fit into specific boxes mm -hmm. or identities. Or And I, I know I'm going all over the place right now, but I feel that identity politics has has got it wrong in a lot of ways. It's almost like a hmm. de a de sexing and a de imagination of uh, of humanity, 
like we're almost moving more towards transhumanism, uh, <laughs> which is like, you know, the AI world. Right. Um, yeah. And it's scary. I mean, our humanity, it's not just our democracy that's at stake. It's our humanity as well. Yeah. The more the more closer we move towards AI, and I don't think people are talking about it enough, the less we're going to u- lose our humanity culturally and personally. The less we're going to lose our humanity. I mean, the more we're going to lose more, our okay. humanity. Sorry. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> We'd yeah, like to hope that, that it would be less. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, but, but yeah, it's, it's a bid for that, too. And I'm doing that in my music as well. I'm really trying to, you know, I mean, people are going to start getting replaced by AI voices you know, in music. Or yeah. That's what we're moving towards. And, and all the um, arts, really. <clears throat> all the arts, all the jobs. Yeah. Um, it's a very scary place we're going to. And I just want, I want, I want our, our blood to boil from it and for our passions to come out because, you know, we're moving toward a time when that's not going to be possible anymore. Yeah. You know, and I think kind of to distill what I was getting at before, um, and you know, this kind of relates to, I don't know, social media and just media in general, you know, the, the, the phrase parasocial relationships, right? You know, mm, no, tell me what what well, is that? That is like if if you're a big fan of like a podcaster or some media personality that um, talks about themselves a lot, or uh, you know, it somehow inserts that you know their life into um, whatever 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 it is they do. Um, people can highly relate, you know, to mm-hmm. that person is almost as if they're a friend, as mm. if they know them. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, for instance, I, you know, the podcaster, Mark Marin, the comedian, right. Um, Who I've been listening, listening to for years. Mm -hmm. And he's commented on this himself in his own podcast, but, you know, because he, he puts his life front and center and, and talks about what he's, what's on his mind all the time. All so many of his followers feel as though they know him, you know, they have, and that's, so that's the parasocial relationship. And it kind of, I think for a lot of people, that kind of relationship, um, because we're all so isolated, especially post-pandemic and how that's changed everything mm-hmm. with how we consume media um, and how we interact with people, um, you know, from this digital remove, um, there's a hunger for having some kind of like uh, more personal relationship. But these are often, that often manifest with people that we don't truly know, but we feel like we know because they've shared so much about their lives. And that's right. sort of the yeah. angle that I was going at with this book. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not quite, you know, quite the same. You're not, you're not, you don't have a regular show where you're talking about this stuff all the time, but mm-hmm. I think, right. I think, you know what I'm getting at, right? I do. Like, yeah. I do. yeah. And so yeah. Um, I just found that in, in this book in particular, in, in, you know, I don't have any background similar to yours at all and what you went through, but I was still feeling like, like I was, you know, having uh, a conversation with a, with a friend that I'd known for a long time, who was confessing to something that, you know, they'd wanted to get off their chest for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but yeah, but this is, this is so personal and so moving, but, but I don't, I don't know this person. So it's just something that did, just stood out to me, you know, just as mm-hmm. a general kind of um, how we perceive uh, relationships with, you know, people who are uh, media personalities or whatever, who we don't actually know in right, real life. Right. You know? yeah, I, yeah. I understand that. I mean, one of the things I was 
scared about with with presenting the book is that people would come up to me and say, oh, you poor thing, what you went through, like the pity look, you know, (laughs) which Maddie hates. Right. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And, 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 you know, I thought, oh, God, are are people going to do that? No, please don't. But um, (laughs) yeah, it, it, you know, I, I, so much of the book is, of course, me, you know, the way I relate to music still. Mm-hmm. is is on a very physical visceral level and um um yeah yeah um that's yeah. A, that that works for me it's okay for me to be known in that way yeah yeah Socially. for sure for sure um well so you know another thing that i wanted to bring up it and and i mentioned this in our original interview um despite all of the the grimness to maddie's story there are there are some kind of surreal moments of humor. And I mentioned this, this character that you called Miss Aquanest. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is, this is during one of Maddie's um, escapes. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and she slash you, um, you get picked up by this, this, you know, pretty eccentric woman with a wild, massive, like, hairspray hair right yes (laughs) yeah um and and that was just a to me like a a great moment of comic relief and i mentioned john waters because Mm -hmm. it reminded that that miss aquanest character (laughs) kind of reminded me of somebody who would be in a john waters film and you know you you'd said that well you know you you didn't want to come off as cruel or mocking you know um Mm -hmm. and and i thought of i thought of john waters because i feel like no matter how freaky any of any of his characters are, any of his films, mm-hmm. you know, there's an affection for them. Of course. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and that's, that's the tone that I got, you know, when you were recounting that story. Right. Right. right? Yeah. Um, did you have that in mind at all when you were writing it or, how, you know, like, did you struggle over how to present that person? Um, I, I, you know, there, there were so many, <laughs> as you know, so many interesting characters that kind of go in and out of my story. It's very episodic in that way. Right. Um, so I did try to tell the truth about it. I mean, and there, there's moments too with my uh, natal family where the, the men in on the Italian side are just being ridiculous, you know, like yeah. the faux gangster kind of attitudes that they yeah. had. And right. One, one actually was a, a gangster, but yeah, I, you know, there's there was there was humor and there was lightness in the story as well, um, and that's what I always reached for. Um, but I'm glad that you that you enjoyed that particular character. She she was funny. Yeah, yeah, you know, brief appearance, but it's like a it, it literally is a wild ride. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's go back to music because you know you you know music. Um, was as you'd said really kind of a saving grace for you and then i i had really loved that line um and and then also not not religion per se but almost more religious religious iconography mm-hmm. you know um especially mm-hmm. catholic um mm-hmm. and your uh and you know maddie's uh you know sort of uh i don't know fixation is the right word but but fascination maybe with mm-hmm. various saints and their suffering but that, I love this line. If there really is a God, God has to be music. And then, you know, so what, you know, what particular elements of music do you really think are so, were so salvational? What is it about music in particular? I know it's rooted, you know, 
with your grandmother and, you know, and various other, you know, uh, factors in your background. But what is it about music that you think is so universal that helped be such a salvational factor for you? Um, I think that in general, uh, well, especially for children and why it was important for me as a kid is that you don't understand emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, You base everything on the family that you're, you know, growing up with and you, you know, you don't really understand um, your own particular emotions at any given time. And when I would hear a song when I was a child, um, the emotions of the singer would, I would feel it as a mirror. So, so it, it taught me how to like, what actually tapped into what I was feeling. And, and what, I found it incredibly soothing, you know, like, I think I talk about that one uh, you know, I, I grew up in the 60s when music was fucking phenomenal. It was just <laughs> amazing. You had protest music, love songs, mm-hmm. uh, British British pop. Um, and I remember hearing Jerry and the Pacemakers song, uh, Ferry Across the Mersey, and being so moved by it because mm. instinctually before my family exploded and we were all taken out of the, of the house via the state, um, I knew instinctually that I was going to be homeless as a child. And when I, when I heard that song, um, it gave me comfort in a way because the singer talks about uh, this land is the place I love and here I'll stay like being well welcomed in his case by a country, but in my hopes and my loneliness as a child, that that would be something for me that someone somewhere was going to be able to embrace me in the way that the country did for Jerry from the pacemakers, you know? So it was a mirror. And, and so, you know, uh, emotional, I built my emotional intelligence through music really. Yeah. And, and I still believe that we all, you know, there, there are, I'm sure you agree that there's certain songs from your past or wherever that you're going to hear and it will bring you right back to the way you felt in a specific moment. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, we listen to certain musics to soothe us or Mm -hmm. I I think, you know, the power of sound in general is very underestimated in our culture. Like what we're listening to now in, in terms of popular music, it's not that much happy happy celebratory music you know if you listen to a lot of <laughs> contemporary singer songwriters especially younger women yeah. uh but yeah i i think music is just such a gauge for what we're feeling personally and what we're feeling as a society yeah and then you had also talked about gospel music especially mm-hmm. and yeah. then you know um the, the the last part of the book i mean a little bit of a spoiler but you know you you were at this what was it home for wayward girls <laughs> was the yeah. blossom hill which was kind of like the last stop you know yes. it sounds like in in, in cleveland for you know yeah. this and 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 that was such an interesting culture that i want to get into in a minute but that was also mm-hmm. um if i'm not mistaken kind of where you you really were exposed to gospel music yes. um and 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 kind of felt a sense of as you know grace through it you know mm-hmm. um having that harmony with other voices singing gospel, even if you weren't, even though you weren't, you know, religious per se, that Mm -hmm. sense of grace, which Mm -hmm. is this sort of, I don't know, ineffable like thing that you can't really pin down, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's Uh, physical. It's very physical. Yeah. You're right. You're right. It is. It's visceral in a lot of ways. 
Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, my grandmother always had a very soulful voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I started singing with her very early on and she taught me how to sing harmony. She was a stride piano player, just absolutely brilliant. But when I got to Blossom Hill and I was singing with black girls in the choir on Sunday morning, singing gospel, um, a few things happened. One mm-hmm. is that it, that the sound, the vibrations of the sound of that music completely took me over and invaded me in the best way possible. I just, mm-hmm. like you said, I just felt this incredible grace. The other thing that happened was I was accepted by black girls who would never have been in any contact with white people in, in Cleveland, Ohio, which was Mm -hmm. incredibly segregated. And through that music, I realized that our divides are so misconceived. Yeah. And I felt it in such a physical, visceral way with music, um, with that music in particular. Yeah. And, and I think they did too. And it, it's beyond analysis. It's beyond all the verbiage we can throw at it. It, <laughs> yeah. it, is, it is something that brings us together. Um, yeah. And then also you, you know, you discovered your talent for singing at that time mm-hmm. and, and also got a lot of respect for that. It sounds like, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and yeah. recognition for that. Um, and yeah, I remember also being struck. I, I think you said that, you know, there were some black girls at that at that facility who you felt had never really interacted with a white girl before. Yeah. It's that segregated, yeah. which is mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, I mean Cleveland in the sixties. Oh my gosh, it was <laughs> wow. so so racist. You know, yeah. um, working class people, Irish, Italian, Polish. It was like black folks. No, you know, it it was really. Uh, just a horrible racism that I grew up with. Not, not with my mother. My mother was the opposite. Um, but, you know, the races were divided. And the only time they came together was really in a situation like mine, where we were in a reformatory because our families were disastrous. And we ended up, yeah. you know, being incarcerated because of that, you know. Wild to just even use the word incarceration for something like that. I but know, yeah. 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 Well, so the other your other refuge aside from from music and this actually even precedes music in a lot of ways for you was reading and books. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then so you had th- this uncle, Jack, who, um, you know, was shipped off to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but, you know, you really connected uh, a lot with him. And I got the impression that he was one of the few people in the family that really kind of got you too mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. and and there was just this amazing you know gentle directive from him you know stick to your books your books are your foxholes mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah 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 and and so you know basically um that was a really early thing and and i i can't remember from the book um how did you get so heavily into reading it doesn't say your your mom was a reader right my mom was a reader. I mean, mm-hmm. she vacillated between like trashy books like The Valley of the Dolls, but mm-hmm. she also loved Khalil Gibran and Charles Dickens and mm-hmm. um, had a brilliant poetry collection that I just adored, you know. And I early on, I was reading Edgar Allan Poe and 
Percy yeah. Bysshe Shelley, and you know, just was so enamored of of the language and the poetry. Um, and that was, you know, I was also the anomaly in my school because the other kids weren't reading poetry, you know. Yeah. Um, so in a way, it became. I think I called it a shield against the nitwits. <laughs> in my, <laughs> in my, but uh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and and my uncle Jack was just such a brilliant guy, and um, something I haven't written about yet. But uh, I had an encyclopedia when I was a kid, uh, a Collier's encyclopedia. And when I was taken out of the home to go to foster homes, I couldn't obviously take it with me. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it was it was just uh, a kind of a uh, it was my foxhole during a period in my childhood when things got very violent and rough. Um, yeah, but. But the most interesting thing is that maybe about 15 years ago, I went to visit my Uncle Jack for the first time. Oh. Uh, and he said, I have something I've been saving for you. And he took me down into his storage basement and had boxed up the encyclopedia, my college encyclopedia. Oh, wow. <laughs> so he had saved it for me. And it oh, was that's amazing. Yes. Yeah, so it's, you know, in my house now and safe and sound. That. That's beautiful to hear. And, and also I, I was wondering what happened to uncle Jack, you know, and I, I don't, I don't recall you ever mentioning that in the book. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 I was kind of under the impression that he never came back from mm-hmm. Vietnam. It was, it was really kind of murky. And of mm-hmm. course, because, you know, you're telling it from, um, you know, Maddie's perspective and she doesn't know either, but um, I'm glad to hear that that he did come back. And it sounds like you, then you reconnected. You said just 15 years ago, only 15 years ago. Wow. Slight, it was very, very difficult for me to reunite with my family Yeah, um, in general. And I was estranged from most of them for most of my life. Um, lots of things happened after the end of that book. Sure. It also, you know, made me feel completely estranged, but um but he ended up uh, coming back from Vietnam. He was he was quite broken, but yeah. he he ended up healing and uh, has a beautiful family now. And you know now we're in touch, which is really lovely. Wow! No, that I'm I'm genuinely happy to hear that. I was like, mm-hmm. you know, especially since you know you you worked with all those vets at the at the, the was it like a VA hospital? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and those stories are also incredible because then you you really saw like this incredible spectrum of behavior from them too, you know, yes, um, yes. you know, from, you know, really loving and, and, and encouraging like Jack, uh, mm-hmm. to like, you know, f- doing a 180 flip to b- really scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, you, you did also refer to your uncle Jack as kind of a, a type of spirit guy, you know, mm-hmm. you said that he'd, he'd be dodging bullets in, in Vietnam and you were, dodging bullets of your own, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, and, uh, and then another, you, you and the, there was that other vet whose name escapes me at the moment. He said that you both deserve purple hearts. Jimmy Clancy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Clancy. Yeah. He was so lovely. <laughs> I mean, I, that was a really important experience for me, um, working at that veterans hospital because I previously in the book, I talk about how I had been abused by a, very ill, mentally ill Vietnam vet. Right. So when I so when I worked again, it's like this alchemical spiritual thing that happened when 
I was able to be put into that situation. I was led there, you know, spiritually yeah. to work with vets and to understand what they went through, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it was, it was uh, incredibly healing for me to have relationships artistic relationships too because i worked in the occupational therapy department with them so we were making art we were making art together you know which i i feel is such a one of the reasons why we're in such dire straits in america yeah is that our creative lives are totally suppressed from the time we're children yeah yeah no i know i know the arts uh, arts education Mm -hmm. um we're just kind of like Oh, not important. That's right. Not, right. You'll you know, never no. make money. You'll never make money. No, and that's what's most important, clearly. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, um, so let's see. Uh, what else I wanted to ask you here. Um, you did then that, you know, working with vets in a creative capacity kind of like, yeah, that set the stage for you uh, in the, in, in, I would say in a realization of, creative work as a, as a healing force. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then when you, you finally got, you know, transitioned out of that, of that facility and got your own dilapidated apartment, (laughs) (laughs) which at first sounds, sounded kind of hellish. Um, but then it turned out to be really fortunate because you had this whole crew of, as you call drag friends living upstairs, um, which, is sort of like an interesting, I don't know, like, a, it's, it's, it's a beautiful kind of unfolding how you had this, you, you know, working with these vets artistically and seeing the healing power of that. And then going from that and then seeing the, you know, the, this group of people who this is in the early seventies, also still in Cleveland, you know, who were, you know, living, living, a, a, a living completely as themselves in a, in a, during an extremely dangerous time. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you happen to just live right below them and they, they took you in and that was like next level, you know, sort of like, yes, you can completely embrace who you are and your, you know, creative identity, your sexual identity, all of it. Um, and that was incredibly fortunate. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know if I asked you this in the original interview, but um, do you feel like it would have taken you a lot longer to kind kind of find your footing creatively and or or validation as yourself or and and as an artist if you hadn't met that crew of people um at that time it, it probably would have been harder but isn't mm-hmm. it isn't it uh, for me it's just so wonderful to realize that all of these groups of people that I've been involved with were always groups that are outside of society mm-hmm. that are unacceptable or, you know, thrown away or oppressed, you know, like Vietnam vets. And I mean, drag queens being gay at that time when I was emancipated from Blossom Hill, Mm -hmm. um, you, I mean, my God, you could not be yourself out in society, but I was fortunate enough to go from, uh, you know, this world of the Vietnam vets who were primarily mentally ill. Um, but, were absolutely incredible human beings to this group of drag queens who were completely oppressed, but because they had created this family, were able to celebrate each other. And, and, you know, that was incredible. And then to go from that eventually to know New York, to New York city and, you know, the late seventies, which was another group of outsiders. Um, Right. 
that created a scene through art again, you know? Um, yeah. 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 And it, well, it, it, it is pretty amazing because you wound up in New York at a time when it was like a magnet for, you know, kind of traumatized people who uh, were exploring their true identities. And it was a place for them to do that. And, you know, going back to like Lydia Lunch and her, mm-hmm. her background, I mean, a very, very similar traumatic sounds like upbringing, oh, yeah, you know, and, yeah, and, for sure. and mm-hmm. I, I, she literally escaped, I think just teenage runaway, I believe, you know, just came to yeah. New York yeah, and just kind of like turned herself into this, uh, you know, um, well, I was going to say persona, but I think it's it's truly her. That, that oh, is, it is. <laughs> that is that is her personality. Her. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I I think one of her, you know, one of her uh, kind of taglines, maybe that's not right, the right way to put it, but one thing that she likes to say is the the, the best rebellion is pleasure. Also, right, mm-hmm. the greatest rebellion, right? Yes. Um, yes. Just embracing that, not having any guilt over it, and then fully, mm-hmm. you know, embracing your own true identity. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you you really had this, this fascinating trajectory from all of that, um, and then winding up in New York at that in that period, yeah, and then yeah. and then it sounds like truly finding finding a home in that community. Oh yeah, for sure. Time. For yeah. sure. Yeah. You know, and I had mentioned this when when I when I interviewed uh, Joseph Keckler, um, you know, seeing that reading at um, you know uh, the Berlin Bar, the Lower East Side, you know, mm-hmm. with, with uh, these personalities from that era. But mm-hmm. then him too, because mm-hmm. he's you know he's he's a bit younger and um, he is doing something that uh, is I think could really only be cultivated in New York still. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I live in New York, and and you know I think as like what most people who live in New York is it's a love hate relationship often, and you're questioning <laughs> what's you know what's the point of living here yeah. with all the hassle and the expense, and especially now with this sort of you know, post Giuliani, like uh, very different New York than what you lived in, right? right a little bit, yeah. a little bit more cleaned up, a little bit more corporate. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, and, and I, I, I mentioned this to him in the interview because that was a really kind of heartening show for me to see because it was these old schooler kind of underground New Yorkers, you know, gathering and you know and doing these readings, and then and then him and. Um, you know, he, he still was embraced by this downtown New York world that, that does exist <laughs> still, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. and there's, and there's still in New York, like this infrastructure for experimental work. Cause there's so many, you know, um, inexpensive little theaters and places you can try out stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and for interlocutor, I've also uh, interviewed other uh, performance type artists who I feel like have thrived specifically in that kind of ecosystem in, in New York. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know, just as a side note that I, I'm happy that still exists in New York that hasn't been completely, oh, yeah. completely wrecked, you know, like yeah. or diminished. Um, there is still, this is still a place where you can come and, you know, there are a lot of uh, platforms still to develop, you know, your own, your own style and, and work. So Definitely, anyways, yeah. just seeing that show was like, it was kind of a great, I thought, combination of like, you know, newer and older um, people who are coming from that same sort of place and why they wound up in New York. Yes. Yes. I, yeah. I wish there was, uh, uh, well, I, I would like to see a lot more of uh, like a transgenerational thing happening, you know, where the people that have, have been around like Lydia and I uh, 
working with younger people as mm-hmm. well. And Joseph is incredible. I, I just uh, was so excited to discover him. I think yeah. what he's, you know, he he's a total outlier, you know, like we were. And um, yeah, apparently he's doing quite well now, too. He's traveling a lot, doing a lot of shows, which is wonderful. He is. Yeah, he's very active. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And he has been also touring with Lydia Lunch, too. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, that partnership <laughs> is is wonderful. I, it's just, I, just, I just love it, you know, how they've, like, mm-hmm. connected creatively. Yeah. 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 Lydia and I, um, she was my first friend in New York City, my first female friend in New York City. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. That... We, to- we totally trauma bonded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I've known her forever. Yeah. She's great. So I, I know like in, in Beth B's case, uh, she met Lydia at uh, Teenage Jesus and the Jerk show. Mm-hmm. Um, is that the case for you? Is that how you, you first encountered Lydia Lunch? No, I first Actually, um, Bradley Field was this character who was playing drums in Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. And mm-hmm. uh, I had known him from Cleveland. So he was one of the few phone numbers I had when I moved to New York. And uh, I went to visit him and she was living there in this little loft bed area cubby hole and um, invited me up to visit her. And we became fast friends, you know, and it was actually the... It was the rehearsal space for Teenage Jesus and for the contortions. So I also met James Chance there right? Um, and did my first contortions. Um, what would you call it? I guess I was being interviewed. I sat down on <laughs> the drums. And, yeah, auditioned. I, <laughs> I sat down on the drums and, and played with him and Pat Place and James Nares, which, which started the whole contortions journey for me. Yeah, yeah. And then from there, you had this whole career in the 80s in music, too. Right, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also before that, in Cleveland, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you were you were playing guitar and singing in, in the, the Wolves, right? Right, yeah. With uh, Peter Lochner. Yeah. Lochner. How's it pronounced? I say Lochner. Lochner, um, okay. Because it's yeah. Scottish, but some people yeah. say Lochner. That's fine, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he was incredible, Mr. Lochner. He, uh, <laughs> you know, he was one of the most talented people I'd ever met, but he had an incredibly self-destructive urge um, and drank a lot and mm-hmm. did drugs and ended up dying very young, which was... It was was really hard because we were very close and we were going to move to uh, New York together. But uh, he died before that could happen. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. No, so it's it's really sad. But, you know, it's funny, like the the parallel, I mean, not funny, but I mean, just, you know, interesting, like the parallels also with uh, the the alcoholism and the drug abuse with Vietnam deaths and also your father. I mean, the Mm -hmm. whole dynamic of self-destructiveness as kind of escapism too Mm, mm -hmm. right oh Um, yeah i went through that for a long time you know (laughs) over my childhood i you know i basically drank and drugged for for years to repress it all um and i think that uh sobriety if it wasn't for sobriety i would certainly be long gone (sighs) yeah yeah well yeah, you know, so I want to mention to those listening out there, um, 
there's a lot more to Adele's life than this story. <laughs> I mean, you, you wrote a whole book of, you know, about your time with, uh, you know, with, with Peter, Peter Lochner. Yeah. 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 Um, and I need to read that. I haven't read that. I, that, that, uh-huh. and that, and that is funny because you wrote that. When did you write? When did that get published? Um, that got published in 2020. Okay. And it's really the, the book that comes after twist. That's what I was going to say. You know, yeah, chronologically. So like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think reading that next would be a good, would be a good move. <laughs> yeah, me, yeah. Yeah. You go right into that. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, I'm writing one more memoir and then I'm sick of writing about myself. I'm going to start writing fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the next memoir is about, you know, this scene we've been talking about. The, uh, the no, no New wave. York, no yeah. wave scene. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you were a personal assistant to Brian Eno, too. I, just I was. I was. <laughs> I'm hoping to see him when I go over to uh, the UK in May. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that's also, you know, he, he had such a savviness um, for scenes and, you know, uh, kind of, I don't know, like he, he went to New York, right. And it just mm-hmm. kind of discovered that no wave scene and, and then yeah. produced that album, right. It was a no New York. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, yeah. that's actually when I was working for him. Um, I took him around to the, to the events that were happening, like at artist space with the, no New York bands, Mars, Contortions, DNA, Teenage Jesus. And uh, he was so enamored of what he was hearing, I mean, which yeah. to me, I always called the music we were making brutalist, you know, oh. it was, <laughs> it was wild. And, and, you know, it was from that, that he decided to do the No New York record. And, yeah. yeah. And I, I think really that captures the contortions, the quintessential contortions are captured on No New York really yeah well i mean that no new york is really kind of the only like singular recording for a lot of a lot of those bands too right i mean uh um, the contortions there was a lot of uh there was a lot of recording for the contortions actually i I don't i don't know so much about mars and dna Mm -hmm. i know that teenage jesus made a few more records i believe i'm not quite uh up to date on Mm -hmm. like who did what after that period. But um, I know the contortions made several other records. I left the band early on. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was just thinking of no New York was an interesting kind. It's like a time capsule kind of compilation. Right. Of that, that, of that, that period. Is, that yeah. it definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, all right. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to the, 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 the memoir <laughs> of that time. Um, and then you can move on to fiction. <laughs> Yes, finally. Do you have like well, a bunch I'm, of novels percolating right now? I've got one. I've got, I've got one <laughs> novel percolating, but I'm also writing a book. Uh, the, you know, the thirty-three and a third books. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing one on Sinead O'Connor's uh, LP, Universal Mother. So oh wow! I'm finishing that up, and also working on the next memoir, and then, and then my novel. I'm very yeah. excited about writing fiction. <laughs> have you never written fiction i mean published fiction or i haven't i haven't seriously? really pu- no i haven't published fiction mm. yet I've, I've written stories over the years but um i'm i'm excited about moving on to the novel that i'm writing which is kind of a murder mystery thing. <laughs> <laughs> like sort of like a whodunit Agatha Christie sort of thing. No, no? It's okay. more more in the uh, David Fincher kind of line of. Oh, okay, okay, cool. 
Exciting. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Well, it'd be good Thank to shift you. gears and, you know, like, yeah. just, you know, yeah, write, write about fictional people for once and exactly uh, draw, but just draw from your life experiences, of course, as, as all fiction writers do. Yes. So, well, hey, listen, it was, it was wonderful talking with you, Adele. Thanks and so much, Tyler. It was really good to, to speak with you. Yeah, likewise. Um, yeah. And also thanks to those of you out there listening. Um, again, you can check out the online edition of Interlocutor Magazine at interlocutorinterviews.com. Also check for updates on Instagram. It's at interlocutor.interviews. And once again, if you're a fan of our arts coverage, you can sign up to be a subscriber or throw a few bucks our way via Patreon. Just click on the Patreon link on our site. And I'll be back soon with another Interlocutor Interviews podcast episode. And once more, thank you, Adele. Thanks. Thanks.